This is The Guardian. Imagine a world without antibiotics. Common operations such as hip replacements and organ transplants could become deadly. Dangerous germs brought into hospitals could spread between vulnerable patients unchecked. And instead of clearing up in a few days as usual, that strep throat or UTI could drag on and on. It's a scary thought, but it's no longer a dystopian future scenario. Antibiotic resistance is here. Exactly what doctors were dreading. A drug-resistant superbug has now been found in one Pennsylvania woman, marking the first case in the U.S. England's chief medical officer says a super gonorrhea is antibiotic-resistant. The bottom line? The bottom line? An untreatable STI spells trouble. A super, super nightmare. Our over-reliance on these drugs in medicine and farming is leading to a global rise in antibiotic-resistant superbugs. And now the UN is warning that pollution and climate change are accelerating the process. So, with no new antibiotics since the 1980s, what does the future of infection control look like? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Hannah Devlin, you're a Guardian science correspondent, and you've been looking into the latest on antibiotic resistance. The UN has just published a report warning of the global rise in superbugs, such as bacteria that have developed resistance to the most common antibiotics. What do they say is happening? Yeah, the the UN had a report out last week looking at antimicrobial resistance um, and is really reiterating the fact that this is one of the central global public health problems that the world's facing. Um, And I think in the past, a lot of the attention has focused on both antibiotic use in healthcare settings and also in agriculture. But this report was sort of adding a new dimension to that and looking at how pollution and also climate change could be playing a role and driving antibiotic resistance. So it was highlighting things like the continued rise of antibiotic in farming, but also the fact that runoff from farms, pollution coming from hospitals and pharmaceutical plants could be releasing, indirectly releasing antibiotics into the environment and through that continuing to drive uh, resistance among different bacteria that are out there in the environment. And what is the scale of the threat that this poses? Yeah, so it's it's a really huge threat. So the most recent figures, I think, showed that at least... 1.3 million deaths per year are attributable to antimicrobial resistance. And those are just the deaths that are directly linked to it. There's probably, you know, a far wider effect beyond that. By 2050, I think, that is projected to double. So we're facing quite a, a serious problem here. And, you know, each year there's new examples of infections that are turning up in hospitals that doctors are finding really difficult to treat with antibiotics that, you know, maybe just a few years earlier had worked without any problem. Are there any particular examples yet of infections that are developing this kind of resistance to the antibiotics we have? Yeah, so I mean, I think the ones that you hear about quite often are so-called hospital superbugs, things like MRSA. But I think increasingly people are seeing this across quite a wide range of infections. So things like pneumonia, tuberculosis, there's been some cases of drug-resistant gonorrhea, urinary tract infections, and 
as far as I know, I don't think there's any particular reason why certain infections won't develop antibiotic resistance. It kind of depends on how much exposure there is of those bacteria to antibiotics. So this is really an arms race between us on the one side with our antibiotics and the bacteria that are sort of constantly evolving to survive those antibiotics. How much effort are the big drug companies putting into new antibiotics? Um, well, yeah, I think that's exactly the right way to describe it. I mean, we need antibiotics. We have to use antibiotics. But if we're not going to be on the back foot in this arms race, we need to keep also developing new drugs to keep pace with the evolution of bacteria. And at the moment, we're not doing that. And that's why we've got a problem. And we are sort of relying on drug companies to do that job. And the problem is for them, drug development is hugely expensive. We've been used to antibiotics being cheap drugs. They're time limited course. So from a drug company's point of view, it's not like creating an antidepressant or maybe pain medication where people might be taking it for a longer period of time. And also, this is developing a drug that's going to be potentially a backup for when the current cheaper drugs stop being effective. So you're asking companies to develop a, a drug that then is going to be just held in reserve for when we might need it. So I think there is has been a bit of a breakdown in the pipeline. Governments need to think about how they're going to incentivise companies to develop drugs that are maybe going to be held in reserve. Otherwise, those drugs aren't going to be developed. Despite all this, we've seen a couple of interesting developments already this year. The first one relates to this genetically modified bacteria, and you've written about it for the paper. How does that work? Yeah, so I think as the scale of this problem has become clear, people are starting to look to different approaches to how we could treat infections and maybe looking for approaches that might not be as susceptible to resistance. So this was a study from a university in Spain looking at using genetically modified bacteria that would sort of help the treatment of lung infections. So the person who developed this treatment described the bacteria as being like battering rams that lay siege to antibiotic resistant bacteria. So they basically modified them so that they could enter the resistant bacteria and then allow the antibiotics to get into the cells and kill the infection off. So the idea here was to use it alongside um, conventional drugs to make them more effective. And this study was only done in mice, so it's quite early stage research. But I think, you know, it's one of a growing number of studies that we're seeing coming through that are aimed at trying to provide solutions to this problem. There's also been work on a potential new antibiotic derived from a plant toxin. What's the story with that one? Yeah, so this was a team of scientists from the John Innes Centre and they'd identified a plant toxin called albicidin and they found that this compound was um, also very effective at killing bacteria. These new compounds that can kill bacteria come up fairly often. But what I think was quite exciting about this one is that the scientists in the lab spent quite a long time trying to elicit resistance from bacteria. So by exposing loads of bacteria to this compound, trying to get resistant strains to grow, and they weren't able to do that. And that suggests that this has potential as being an antibiotic that is quite difficult for bacteria to become resistant to. You know, again, this is early stage research, but it does look quite promising. 
as well as these kinds of developments we've been talking about, there is another hope on the horizon, perhaps a distant one, but it's something called phages. What are they, first of all? So these are viruses that are harmless to people normally. They're in, everywhere in the environment. There's no reason to think that they cause disease, but they are deadly for bacteria. So uh, there, there's been a growing interest in using these phages as treatments. And in fact, there is actually quite a long history of this. You know, for the last century, they've been used, particularly in, in Russia and Georgia, um, they've been used in hospitals to treat people. But there's been a growing scientific interest in developing treatments that could be used more widely. And where do these phages come from? How do scientists kind of collect them, harvest them, if you like? I mean, we know a lot of antibiotics, penicillin, example, coming from mould. Where, where do you get phages from? As I said, they're just out there in the environment. So, you know, they can be collected from ponds, bird baths, even sewage samples, obviously refined and made safe by the point that they're put into the lab, I assume. But yeah, they're out there and people do go out, you know, hunting in the soil. And I guess the thing is that any individual phage won't work on all bacteria. So the key is really to try and find phages that are going to be useful for particular infections. And so, you know, the scientists developing phage libraries where they categorise all these phages and try and assess which bacteria's different phages could be used to tackle. So are any of these phages being used at the moment? Have there been any success stories, even if it's just sort of on the small scale? Yeah, there have been some really remarkable success stories. So... A few years ago, I covered a story of a British teenager. She has cystic fibrosis and was down to have a lung transplant and then developed an infection after that. And the infection didn't respond to antibiotics. And her doctors had essentially run out of treatment options for her. And at that point, her mum had been doing some research online, come across the idea of phage therapy and mentioned it to her doctor and luckily for her, her doctor took it seriously, did some research, got in touch with the lab in the States, and they said they might be able to help. And they were sent over a sample of the bacteria from her infection. And it turned out they did have several phages that could be used to treat the infection. And she was successfully treated and recovered. And that was one of the world's first cases of phages being used in that way. This is still quite small scale. We're not talking big clinical trials, but there's definitely a growing number of clinical cases where these things are being used. It does seem like interest is growing in phages lately. I mean, the House of Common Science Committee had a session on phages just last week. I mean, I know you followed that. Did you get a sense from those discussions of how far off phage treatments are? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a mixture of um, sort of excitement about the potential. And, you know, there is a, a lot of really strong science going on in this area. But then also the difficulty in getting some of this stuff into clinic. There are quite big barriers to doing trials in this area. There is a requirement in the UK, at least for the viruses to be manufactured to this sort of very high clinical standard. But at the moment, there isn't a facility in the UK to do that. And then also the fact that it's often being quite bespoke treatments means that it's maybe commercially a bit more difficult to 
to get into and to develop things that are going to be guaranteed to be successful because it's not like you can develop something, patent it and then sell it to loads of people. It's a bit more of a bespoke process often. So given that a lot of these really exciting potential treatments are still some way off, what are bodies like the UN and our national health experts wanting to change in the short term to combat antibiotic resistance? Um, well, I think there's, um, you know, they're continuing to raise awareness about trying to restrict antibiotic use to where it's really necessary. Um, and particularly in farming, that continues to be a huge problem. And there's we're still on a kind of upward slope for how much antibiotics are being used in farming. And you can't help think, you know, things like at the moment, all the birds having to be kept inside. I mean, animals living in tight containment is going to mean that illnesses can spread more easily and then you're going to need more antibiotics. So I think that is a big challenge. So the UN in its recent report also highlighted this environmental dimension to antibiotic resistance and really encouraging governments to try and implement new measures to stop things like pollution coming off from farms, hospitals, pharmaceutical production that could also be playing a role. Hannah, huge thanks for coming on and walking us through it all. Really good of you. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Hannah Devlin. This episode was produced by Madeline Finlay. The sound designer was Joel Cox and the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then.